Genesis chapter 29. We're going to do verses 1 through 30. This is still Jacob's story, and it will be for several chapters. It was Abraham, it was Isaac, and now it's Jacob. And his story was not like Abraham's or Isaac's with a very auspicious beginning. His story began with deception, stealing the birthright from his brother by lying and taking advantage of his blind father. And that drove him away from his family into the wilderness, where last week we saw the story took a bit of an upturn. He met God. He saw the angels ascending and descending on the stairway to heaven at Bethel, or Luz as it was called then, but later it would take the name Bethel, which means house of God. And I mentioned last time, the wilderness, the desert in scripture, is a picture of upheaval. It's a picture of transformation and testing and change. That many times in the Bible we see that when a big change comes to a person's life or when God is ready to do something new with them, they end up in the wilderness or the desert. And today, Jacob is going to reach what I guess you could call the midpoint of his journey. If his whole story could be described as a journey, he starts from home, he goes away, and then he comes back. Tonight he's going to reach that midpoint, and he's going to be there for a while. And Jacob is going to encounter, through his uncle, what he could become if he does not change. Or what he could be without God, without letting God take over his life. And there have been many times where we are forced onto spiritual journeys. Sometimes it's for a good reason. Sometimes we have something go well in our lives. You have a child that's going to be born. You're about to be married. And you're in a place of transition. Like the children of Israel were in the wilderness, but for a good reason. They were brought out of Egypt. And the change is coming. And we go, all right, we're going to get it together. And we're going to make some changes. And we're going to do what we need to do. We're going to take this more seriously. Other times, you just get whacked. Life messes you up. People hurt you, you lose a job, and you end up in the wilderness on a spiritual journey. Like, well, I didn't plan on doing this, but here we go. But other times, it's your own fault. And that's where Jacob was. He had nobody to blame but himself. Like when Jonah was at the belly of the whale. It's not a wilderness, but it's the same kind of thing. He was out in the middle of nowhere because of his own sin and his own problem. And while we are on those journeys, the place that God wants to take us first, we already saw, is to meet him. But secondly, the Lord takes us to see ourselves. And that's not the fun part. (laughs) Angels ascending and descending is the fun part. But at the bottom or in the midpoint of that journey, at the deepest, darkest part of the wilderness, that's where we see ourselves. James would compare it to a mirror. And this will be a, a verse that expresses the theme for tonight. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. He said, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James says, God brings you to that place where you look into the mirror through scripture, through godly people, sometimes through circumstances, or you do something that you never would have expected out of yourself, and you see that self. And it's compared to the righteous law of God. And he says, when you see that, don't just walk away. If you look in the mirror and you see you got a big piece of food sticking in your teeth, you usually will get a toothpick and get it out. 
You don't walk away and say, oh man, that was disgusting, and just keep walking. We spend time in front of the mirror in the morning, more or less, so that we can make sure that we're putting on the best face, right? It's like, why would you go to the law of the Lord, the mirror that God holds up and shows you you, and not make a change? Well, because sometimes the hardest truths to face are the facts about who we really are. The title tonight is The Monster in the Mirror, because that's what Jacob's going to see. A lot of times we think we're not so bad, but the Lord shows us who you could become if you continue on this path. If you don't let me transform you. And that is something that is monstrous and ugly and nothing that any of us want anything to do with. But God wants to bring us to that place, show us, show it to us, let us look it full in the face so that he can then take us away from that and redeem us to how he wants us to be. It's not enough to dawdle through life and just take it one minute at a time, not thinking about yourself, not thinking about the future, or to ignore what is true, like James said. You've got to be ready to do what is necessary to make the change. And it's going to take several chapters for Jacob to finally do what is necessary. But tonight, he's going to meet his monster in the mirror, named Uncle Laban. And I hope that the Lord will do the same thing for you and me. So let's read these first 14 verses. And then we'll spend some time thinking about that. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. Eastward journeys never end well in the book of Genesis. It's an interesting study you could do, maybe. As he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. So Jacob arrives. He left Beersheba, which is at the southern part of Canaan, and he came to Haran. Now Haran was hundreds of miles away, even to the point of being north of that stretch of the Mediterranean Sea. He had stopped at Bethel, which was 70 miles away, but he's now completed the journey. It probably would have taken him a long time to get there. And the goal, you remember, was to get out of Dodge until Esau had calmed down. Because Esau said, when dad's dead, you're dead, and then I'll get the blessing anyway. So his mom sent him away, but also to find a wife for himself. Remember, Esau had married those two Hittite women, and then he married the Ishmaelite woman, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So 
That was probably the, the cover story, so to speak, although it was a true reason. But the real thing was to get away from Esau. And you'll remember from earlier in chapter 11, Haran was built by Terah, who was Abraham's father. Terah had three sons, Nahor, Abraham, or Abram as he was known then, and Haran, who was the other one. And he died before they left the city of Ur of the Chaldeans. Haran was Lot's father. You remember Lot, of course. And when they left Ur the first time, remember Abraham was supposed to leave his family, and instead he took the whole family with him. And they got to Haran and they stayed. And it seems because they named the city after Terah's son who had died that Terah was probably the one who built the city or at least made it great. And it seems to still be the case because Laban seems to have some influence in the city even now. This area is also called Padan Aram. Aram is like Syria, the Syrian nations. So there's some history with this city. This is the place that Abraham left when he was 70 to finally get to the promised land. So Jacob is in a way, retracing the steps of his ancestors. And he arrives at a well, and the well is covered up with a big stone. They would do that to keep critters from falling in and people from stealing the water. And you remember the stories where Isaac had his wells filled up with dirt from all the people who didn't like him. That's probably the reason they did that. And it's odd because the shepherds were waiting in the heat of the day. You can hear Jacob saying it. He's like, guys, the sun's coming up. It's not time to bring the sheep in. Y'all got to be out in the pastures letting the, the sheep eat. I said, well, we always wait for everybody to show up and, and then we all just do it at once. And you're supposed to get a sense of the laziness of these people here and also that Jacob was the one that knew what to do. And we're going to see that as we go through the story, Jacob is going to become Laban's overseer, so to speak. He's going to handle all the flocks and all the herds and Jacob is the only one with any sense, it seems. He's like, y'all just going to sit here all day and wait and I'll give you a little note here. It has been my experience that when you have a boss who is a cheat and a liar and is cruel to the people who work for him, it makes for lazy employees. And it kind of seems what we have here. We're going to learn all about Laban. Like, oh, do you know Laban? They go, yeah. Yeah, we know Laban. Here comes his daughter. Why don't you talk to her? But we don't know all that yet. And it says that the stone was large, the big old stone. And then here comes Rachel. This is Jacob's cousin. This is Rebecca's brother's daughter. Rebecca was Jacob's mother. Laban was her brother and Rachel was his daughter. And she was a shepherdess. It's interesting to me to wonder why she was keeping the sheep because we're going to see later that Laban did have other sons. You might not be anything to read into that, but it is just interesting to see that. A lot of stories in the Bible, by the way, of people encountering one another at wells. Have you noticed that? That the, the hero will come to the well and then here comes a woman and they talk to the woman and the woman runs back to tell her family and then they come back out and the story continues. We saw this with Eliezer who was Abraham's servant to go and retrieve Isaac. Maybe at this very well actually. This is when he prayed for the woman to water his camels and all the rest. Jesus would have a similar encounter in John, I believe it's chapter 4, the, the woman of Samaria where he's at the well and out she comes and then she goes back and brings the people from the city so, very interesting. A lot of little stories like that. Wells, of course, were very important in this culture. You didn't have running water. You had a well. So, that's where everybody had to go. Now, Jacob sees her coming, and he rolls away that large stone. This would have been a feat of strength, which is kind of cool, because Jacob, up to this point, has been portrayed as the weak little mama's boy. Maybe he just saw Rachel, and he found it within himself to move that big old stone. Stranger things have happened. Or, oh, here she comes. Now you can do it because she's watching. 
This is important to see. There, there are even some Hebrew traditions that say that Jacob must have been a giant in order to roll this stone away by himself. I think it was uh, Luther, or one of the other reformers, that said he could only have done this by the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say. The idea is that this is impressive, and he's demonstrating how capable he is of taking care of this situation. It reminds us also of Moses. Remember later Moses will drive away the people that were harassing Jethro's daughters at the well? A lot of well stories. But a pretty impressive way to uh, begin a relationship with a beautiful young woman, which is probably his, his whole point. And he tells her who he is. It says he kissed her first. I'm sure that there was some explanation before that happened. But Laban comes out to greet him just like last time when Eliezer had come from Abraham. Remember that as soon as Laban saw the gold jewelry she'd been given, he hightailed it out of that city. He said, oh, I'm going to make friends with this guy. And he gives Jacob a job. Hey, stay with us. You're going to work for me. It's going to be great. And maybe that's what Jacob was thinking. Hey, God's on my team. God met me in the wilderness. I met him at Bethel. I said I was going to serve him, and now I am, and things are going great. And that's sometimes, unfortunately, the way we think. Well, I got everything right with God. Everything's just going to fall right into place. I'm never going to have any problems again. Well, this first month is going to be about the only good month that Jacob had in Laban's house. You all know the story. So let's read verses 15 through 20. Then Laban said to Jacob after that month, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Everybody say, aww. <laughs> After about a month, Laban introduces wages to their relationship. Money always makes things so much better in a family, don't they? When people start owing each other money, doesn't that make everything so much smoother? And we're going to see, as we go through this story, that word wages is going to come up a lot. And it was the point of friction that's going to eventually cause Jacob to leave. But for right now, he's saying, hey, just because your family doesn't mean you shouldn't be paid for all the work you're doing, what shall I pay you? Now, this was Laban being sneaky because he wanted to be able to hold it over Jacob's head. Say, hey, I'm, I'm the one that pays you. I can't just treat you like anybody else. I've got to be your, your employer over you. So what do, you want me to, what do you want me to pay you? And we meet these two daughters. Number one is Rachel, or Rachel is how you would say that. So maybe you've met a woman named Raquel. That's actually closer to the pronunciation than Rachel, but it's of course fine. And Rachel, the name means you, like a female sheep. You're going to see Laban is very creative with these names. And Leah, is, that's just how you pronounce it, Leah, means cow. So, yeah, all the women just made a face. Like, yeah, that poor, that poor young thing. Maybe it was prettier in Hebrew than it, <laughs> than it was in English. Now, it says that Rachel was the younger daughter and that she was beautiful in form and appearance. So, form and appearance would mean in the face and in the body. She was beautiful. It says that Leah's eyes were weak or her eyes were soft or even dull, it could say. Now, this is... Really, we're not quite sure what that means. It does not mean that she couldn't see very well. And the reason we know that is because it is contrasted with beautiful and form and appearance. So we know what beautiful means. The opposite of that is 
weak eyes. I've heard this understood a number of ways. It could be that her eyes just were not beautiful and that in these cultures, the women often will cover their faces and all you see are the eyes, so the eyes are kind of important. But I haven't seen anybody who could adequately prove to me that that was the case in this culture, but it could be. It could be very possible that by saying her eyes were weak, it's a way of saying it made other people weak in the eyes, as in she was not beautiful to look at. So the point is, she was not pretty like Rachel was. Her eyes were weak. Her eyes were soft or dull. And Jacob is in love with Rachel. Fancy that. And he says, I'll work for you for seven years in order to marry your daughter, Rachel. And Laban accepts. Put that in air quotes. He accepts. Oh, sure. Yeah, that sounds great to me. Work for me for seven years. We saw back in chapter 24, Laban was more interested in Abraham's money than anything else. Remember, they tried to get Rebecca to stay with the servant. Oh, for at least a month. Stay for at least. And like, no, 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 we got to go now. Because they were figuring, we keep this guy around here longer. He'll keep spending money and then we'll keep getting richer. And that's what Laban is going to do. He's interested in Jacob working for him because remember, Jacob is the one that has smart ideas about how to tend the sheep and is strong enough to get the rock off the wells. Hey, this guy, this guy knows what he's doing. I better keep him around. His name Laban means white, as in clean, because in that culture, getting a pure white color, of course, was very difficult because of the sand and the dirt and everything. But if anything, he was what Jesus would call a whitewashed tomb. Oh, so clean and so pure. Oh, yes. Praise the Lord. He said that in the last. Remember? Oh, God must be with you. Whitewashed tomb. Eliezer, the the servant from before, was able to see through this guy because every step of the way was in prayer. Lord, I'm about to come here. Show this woman to me. Here are the signs I'm looking for. He was prepared to walk away if it didn't feel right. And he was not about to be hoodwinked by this guy. But Jacob here is seeing only with the eyes of his flesh. He saw how beautiful Rachel was, and he was smitten. And he starts flexing his muscles so she can see how strong he is. And I'll work for you for seven years. And there's something else I need to say here, too. You know, women, you hear that, and we say, that's so barbaric that they would, they would pay money or they, they would work for a woman. Well, there's a couple things here. First of all, that this was in order to take care of the family, and this was a way to make sure that people were taken care of. Also, for the woman, this would have been a mark of pride, The higher the price was for her, the more flattering it would have been to her. Do you know what my husband paid for me? Seven years, girlfriend. Seven years. How long did your husband work for you? It's a different culture, you guys. It's not always oppressive. It's just just different. And Jacob is only seeing with the eyes of his flesh, not to spoil it for you, but later on, Rachel is not exactly going to be good for Jacob. She's going to cause him all kinds of trouble. But for right now, he's only looking with the eyes of his flesh. And Jacob, the heel catcher, the deceiver, has met his match in Laban. And we're going to see that this is going to be, as Galerwin put it, Galerwin said the name Jacob means dirty, sneaky thief. These chapters are going to be a dirty, sneaky thief contest. Jacob has finally met somebody who is dirtier, sneakier, and thiefier than he is. He's met what we're calling the monster. Jacob... The deceiver is meeting somebody who has lived a life of deception. And now he is seeing, if I continue on this road, that's what I'm going to turn into. God met Jacob at Bethel. Lord, I'm going to serve you. That's great. 
That's the first thing you need is a fresh view of God. But here's the thing. When you meet God, the first place he often wants to take you is to get a fresh view of yourself. The Lord wants to show you who you are. Remember, Peter met Jesus, but it wasn't until he was able to see the catch a fish come in and say, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. That was what really broke Peter. And Peter had a couple moments like that. But it's the, it's the truth. The Lord wants us to see ourselves. He takes Jacob, you could say, to the depths of himself. Let me take you all the way down into your heart, Jacob. There's a monster living down there. And it's you, but it looks an awful lot like Laban. Jesus in the wilderness went out and faced all the temptations, right? He perfectly resisted all of them. But what is, what is Satan offering him? He says, hey, use your power to to turn these stones into bread or throw yourself off the temple, put on a big show and let everybody follow you. You know, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these things. He, he was presenting Jesus with the opportunity to be an antichrist. But of course, Jesus is like, you get out of my face, Satan. It is written, right? We see this with Peter when he finally denied Jesus. Yeah. Lord, I'll, I'll die for you. I'm ready to go to prison with you. And then he saw who he really was in that moment, huh? What about Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus? I'm serving the Lord. I'm doing everything that we're supposed to. I'm zealous for the law. I'm on my way up. And then the Lord knocks him down, pow. And he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he saw for the first time how blind he was, huh? What about Elijah, the big, brave prophet that stood up to Ahab and Jezebel and called down fire from heaven and slew all those prophets and finally called the rain back. And then he ends up in the wilderness, scared to death. Even Moses he said he thought the people knew, well, I'm going to be your deliverer. That's the thing those movies often get wrong, is they make Moses like this reluctant hero. The Bible says Moses was kind of planning a slave rebellion. He grew up in the court. He knew how things worked. He knew how to game the system and what, where the alliances were weak. And he says, and I've got all these Hebrew slaves. And they all know me. I'm on their team. So it says he goes out and he's being among the people and he sees one of them getting whipped and he kills the Egyptian. Let the revolution begin. And then he comes back out. Hey, brothers, why are we fighting? Why don't we, we work together against Pharaoh? And they said, would you back off? Who made you prince over us? You're going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian and then buried him in the sand? And Moses ran. And he ends up in the desert, tending sheep, stuttering, stammering, and afraid to go back. He saw who he really was. He thought he was something, but he really wasn't. That's what happens. We meet God, but God wants us to show us who we really are. Jacob had been living one way. His deception drove him out. Normal was no longer a possibility. He's in the wilderness. He meets God, but God brings him to Laban, the consummate liar, the ultimate cheat, so that Jacob can look him in the face and say, man, that guy's rotten. And the Lord goes, you're right. What's your name again? Well, I'm Jacob. And why are you here? Because I lied and cheated and deceived. When David was caught with Bathsheba and that whole mess, he wrote in Psalm 51, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David caught a glimpse of himself. I'm a man after God's own heart. I'm the king of Israel. I'm the holy one. I'm the righteous one. I'm tearing down the high places. And then he does something like that, and he realizes, I was brought forth in sin. There was no innocence for me. I've always been this way. And Lord, you want truth in the inward being, not just in the outward. We all have these moments. Have you ever had a moment like that where you catch a glimpse of yourself? 
When you're tired or you're stressed or you're frustrated and then you get tipped over the edge just a little bit and then pow, out it comes. And you go, where did that come from? Where did that word come from? Where did that temper come from? Where did that violent or lustful or sexual thought come from? Where, where was that? How could I lie like that? How could I treat somebody that way? Consider that. What is the worst version of you? You know yourself. You know your weaknesses. You know where you struggle. And you're all here on a Wednesday night at church, okay? You all are making an effort, and that's great. But consider, if, if all that restraint was pulled away, where would you be? Maybe you know exactly because you've been there. Maybe you haven't. I hope you haven't. You must let the Holy Spirit take you down into the caves of your heart to meet the monster that's living down there. Because nobody ever believes that they could be like that. Jacob probably went home every day. I, can you believe that guy? He just lies and cheats and just takes whatever he wants. And God's sitting there like, yeah, how about that? Must be really frustrating for you, Jacob. Nobody ever believes they'll end up in the worst possible place. I read a book by a man named Christopher Yuan, who is an evangelist and apologist now, but he was living the, the full decadence of the homosexual lifestyle before he was saved. And his book, he says, at the beginning, I, my parents who were, who were saved are telling me this was wrong, but I thought, yeah, but they're, they're thinking of, of the crazy. They're thinking of the guys that do the drugs and, and have all the wild, crazy sex and go to these parties. I'm not going to be, I'm just going to be the normal everyday guy and you know the only difference is that I'm gay and he talks about how it was an inevitable slippery slope because he didn't have Jesus he had no restraint in his life and one thing led to another and now he's dealing drugs and doing all the rest and he ends up in prison he's like I never thought I'd see myself there I never wanted to go there I looked at people like that and I looked down on them they couldn't control they couldn't handle themselves like I could but he was brought to the place where he saw who he really was and here's the thing, you don't have to crash to see that. You don't have to defraud your father and your brother and get driven out of your own home to do this. God is wise, and if you listen and go to him in prayer, he'll show you. That's the nice way to do it, because <laughs> you don't have to deal with all the consequences yet. But Jacob has met his monster, you could say. And right now, everything still seems fine. He's in love. He's working. He's making those little notches on the wall. One more day until we can be together, baby. And, but things are about to go very, very bad. And this is one of the, you might say, darkly humorous stories in the Bible. Let's read this, verse 21. You thought what Jacob did was bad. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Whew. Well, that's in the Bible. Seven years, Jacob demands his wife. Isn't that kind of crass the way he puts that in verse 21? Give me my wife that I may go into her. 
To go into is a reference to sexual relations. This is a very crass, abrupt way that he's putting this here. Still thinking with the flesh and not with the spirit. And the feast is prepared. Oh, we're celebrating seven years, finally, true love. And what happens next might seem baffling, but Leah is given to Jacob and not Rachel. Now we ask the obvious question, how in the world did Jacob not know? Well, there's a couple explanations here. Number one is the traditional wedding veil that was worn at this time. Would have covered the whole face. Number two, this is at night. They didn't have electricity like we do now. And number three, I think the primary explanation, Jacob was probably drunk. This was an all-day party leading up to his wedding night. And I bet you Laban saw to it that he was good and drunk before he gave him his daughter. Whatever the case... Jacob does not realize he has married the wrong woman until the next morning. And the Bible kind of skips over that whole moment of realization. And he confronts Laban. No doubt Laban probably had a lot of big, strong friends around him at this moment. But it's too late now. And look at Laban. He acts all indignant. He's like, how could you give me the wrong woman? He says, well, how could you ask for the younger daughter first? That's just not done around here, young man. Trying to spin it. Haven't you ever been in that situation where somebody does something horrible to you and then they try and spin it around like you did something wrong? There are some people that are masters at that. Where you are angry about something and by the time the conversation's over, you're apologizing to them. Manipulative, cheating, lying, sneaking. This is Laban. Doesn't apologize. Well, look, you're already married to Leah. You might, you know what? We'll give you the other one too. No problem. It'll be seven more years. He says, complete her week. What does this mean? In this culture, there was a seven-day wedding ceremony, wedding festival. Judges 14, 17 talks about Samson and his wife and her week. He ended up not marrying her, and that's another whole story you can read. But he says, hey, we got six more days of parties, and this was a way to ensure that the marriage was consummated over those seven days. It was a way to try and get children early. And then you work for me seven more years. So he says, you be Leah's husband for a week, Next week, we'll have another week-long festival, and you'll marry Rachel, and then you work for me seven more years. What a piece of work, you might say. Jacob has just fallen victim to the same kind of heel-catching for which he fled Beersheba, huh? He also was deceiving. Is that you, Esau, my son? Oh, yes, my father. Is it really? Come here, let me... Are you sure? You're really sure that it's you? Yes, of course it is. And now here he also gets deceived when he can't see. He did not let the Spirit lead him. He had met God, but God had not yet taken ownership and leadership in his life. He's proceeding just as he did before, and he got walloped by the world and his own flesh. This is what can happen. Your life is a constant battle between who you are and who you are becoming. And in your sin, you're headed down a very dark place. And the monster in the mirror wants to become your reality. Not just something you could become, but to actually be that person. Galatians 5.17 says, The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And when you give in to the flesh... It takes you to a dark and lonely place. 
Think about Jonah. God told Jonah, I want you to go and proclaim my message to Nineveh. You want me to go where? I want you to go and proclaim the destruction against Nineveh. If I do that, those Assyrians are going to repent and God's going to deliver them. And my country is going to continue to be oppressed and dominated by these people. So no, I'm not going. So where does he go? He gets on a boat. And the, the deep water and the depths of the sea are, are also a symbol of the, similar to the wilderness of being out in, in a stormy and dark and difficult place. And not only that, he gets thrown into the water and gets swallowed, you could say, by the monster of his own prejudice and his own hate. That's what will happen. Your worst tendencies will eat you alive if you give in to them. About Peter, same thing. Peter was impulsive, but he was also kind of a coward. And he denied his Lord three times. Or Judas, same thing. Judas gave in to that greed. And now they're nailing Jesus to a cross because of you. And even when Jonah got out of the great fish, he was still in the depths of the, of the monster, wasn't he? Because he's still full of hate and still full of prejudice and still full of pseudo-patriotism. Oh, why don't you just torch them, Lord? Don't you know what they did to my people? And God goes, yeah, but look at all these people. There's 100,000 people in that city. You want me to destroy all those people? And that's what's so crazy about that story is that even when he got out of the fish, he was still bound up. And the same thing will happen to you and to me. That even when you get out of the moment and there's not some big crisis happening, you get eaten by your worst tendencies. All those attributes, well, it's just part of me. This is who I am. I'm just kind of an angry person, you know. I'm just not very kind. It's hard for me to be nice to people. Or, you know, I, I just have a hard time asking for what I want, so I get really good at sneaking around and getting people to do the things I want. Or, yeah, I just, I handle problems violently. That's just the way I am. It's how I do it. Yeah, I guess I'm just, I'm just going to be a guy who cheats. I've heard people tell me that. I'm just a guy who cheats. I can't be with one woman. That's just the way it is. When you accept that, those things will kill you. They will take your hopes and your dreams, and they will smash them to pieces right in front of you. Maybe you've seen this happen. Maybe it's happened to you. Maybe it's happened to a friend or, or a daughter or a son or a parent or someone you love, and you're watching it happen. And you try to help them, and they say, ah, it's just who I am. I can never change. It's the way it goes. And we try to laugh it off. And then we make all kinds of videos and memes on Facebook about, oh, you just got to accept that you're broken and just love all the, the terrible parts of yourself. And what is that all about anyway? You've got a Laban in your future. You will become that guy, Jacob. That's what the Lord is telling him. This guy just did to you, and yet it's so bad and it's so awful, but you just did the same thing. Well, it wasn't as bad. Yeah, but that's where you're headed. You're just like him, Jacob. That's the point. Maybe in other people. You're so good at seeing in other people the things that you deal with. You're so good at calling out pride in other people. You're so good at calling out vanity. Oh, she's only doing that so people will look at her. Oh, man, look at him scheming, trying to go around my back and get my job. Because you do the same thing. You are that person. You watch TV and you see people that are crazy with all their drama and it makes you feel better about yourself because you're not there yet. But that same seed is in you. That same monster is swimming around in the depths of your heart. And if you give into it, it's going to swallow you whole. And every time you give in, you take one more step along that path. Well, verses 28 through 30. Jacob did so and completed her week 
Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. So seven days of celebration, consummation of the marriage, and then the next week they do it all over again with Rachel. And these mentions, by the way, of these two servant girls, Zilpah and Bilhah, are important because they're going to become concubines of Jacob later. But let's just pause for a second. Can you imagine the tension and the anger in this family? Here's a question to ask. How complicit were Leah and Rachel in this scheme? And even if they weren't, do you think that Jacob is going to trust them anymore after this? He loved them, or he loved Rachel, but it doesn't say that she loved him. She could have been just as sneaky as her father. Doesn't seem like they're going to have a happy marriage as we move on. What a big mess. First of all, he's got six more days of wedding festival for this woman that he was just deceived into marrying. And then he's going to have it all over again with Rachel. You don't think that that was the most awkward thing? We're having another wedding feast. Oh, for who? For Jacob. Jacob, he just got married. Yeah, he's marrying his wife's sister. Laban got what he wanted. He wanted an overseer. He got one. He wanted a son-in-law. You ever wonder why these girls weren't married and why nobody wanted to work for Laban? I think we see it right here, don't we? I'm not marrying that girl. I don't care how hot she is. I don't want that guy for a father-in-law. That guy's crazy. I don't want to work for him. Yeah, it might be better to take the sheep out earlier in the morning, but I'm not doing anything extra for that guy. And now Jacob is stuck. To be clear, this was, as odd as it is to us to marry two sisters, it was weird then too. Cross-cousin marriages is what they were called. Cross-cousin meaning you're marrying the daughter or the son of your mother's relative rather than uh, your father's. And that's still practiced around the world today. I don't really know what the difference is, but apparently it makes a difference. And that's still done. But marriage to sisters was not done at the time. And as far as I know, it's not accepted much anywhere else either. Polygamy is in the Bible. It never ends well, though. I defy you to find a good example of polygamy in the Bible. The Bible seems to rank it as what we might call a lesser sin. But... It's not the ideal. Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 8, that God permitted divorce because of your hardness of heart. It was never God's ideal, but if we're going to live in a sinful world, this is how I'd prefer you do it. I think it's the same thing along those lines. Like, I don't want you just shacking up with a bunch of people. Get married. It's better for you to have two wives than to have this string of people that you're not married to around you. Later on, this is going to be forbidden to the kings of Israel not to multiply wives for themselves. In the pastoral epistles, anybody who wants to be a deacon or a preacher in the church must be the husband of one wife. It always makes me laugh because I had to write a paper in college about what does this mean, the husband of one wife, and how does it apply to us today? And it's just so funny because you go to India, they know exactly what that means. You can't have three wives, buddy. Oh, I wanted to be a pastor. Well, sorry, dude. The Lord is always wanting to hold up the ideal in his church, yeah? But this was never okay. Leviticus 18.18 in the law of Moses, it says, You shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister. And that's exactly what they're going to become. Next week is rivalry between these two women. 
They're going to be competing for how many kids they can have. It's not going to be good. We think, this can't have been God's will for Jacob. Yeah, you're right. This was not God's will for Jacob. God told Jacob, I'm going to bless you, and God is still going to pour out grace on Jacob, but it's going to take a long time to break Jacob's flesh. And if Jacob had been listening and praying at the beginning here, he could have spared himself an awful lot of trouble. But you know what the good thing is? We will get to the place where we see Jacob redeemed. If there is a worst version of ourselves that we're calling the monster, the Laban in your life that you might become someday, you also have a redeemed best version of yourself in Christ that God wants to bring you to. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus saw Simon the fisherman, the impulsive, grumpy, prideful Simon, as Peter the apostle. You're Peter, and on that rock I'm going to build my church. He saw Saul, the persecutor, the guy that stood and watched Stephen get his head bashed in with rocks while he guarded the clothes and approved what was going on and volunteered to lead the persecution effort of the Sanhedrin. The Lord said, what a great apostle to the Gentiles he would make. He saw Gideon as a mighty man of valor while he was threshing in the basement. You got the wrong address, pal. I'm not no mighty man of valor. But God said, yeah, but I can make you no mighty man of valor. And he saw Jacob as Israel. And his story is that long journey from Jacob to Israel. Right now, he's encountered God. Great. But now he's encountered himself, and there's been a big mess made. But God's going to redeem that. But here's the deal. God wants to take who you really are. And redeem it for his glory. Sin is taking you in one direction. God says, I'm going to take you in a different direction. We're going to walk with Jacob on this journey for a long time. But the first thing we need to learn tonight is you've got to starve the monster and feed the spirit. Jacob has learned the terms of the battle. Okay, I'm a rascal. He's a rascal. But he's going to keep fighting in his flesh for a while. You and I, need to submit to the Spirit's work when He takes us inward. When we move forward in our walk with the Lord and He shows us, this is who you're becoming. This is what Satan wants from you. I've had moments, I'll tell you, where maybe I'm angry about something and I'll turn on the music and I pick something real aggressive and I'm driving and I'm, yeah, and then the things that start going through my head, I'm like, I'll like turn it off. Like, Whoa, where was that? Where was I headed? Is that guy in there? Is that guy living inside me? Is that what Satan is trying to turn me into? What you need to do in that moment when, as James says, you look into the law, the mirror of who God is, and God shows you who you are. You've got to submit to the Lord and say, fine, I don't want that. The Lord told Cain, remember in Genesis 4, 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You could translate that. Its desire is for you. It wants you. It's waiting for you to destroy you. But you must rule over it. So what do we do? You do what Jesus told us to do. You take up your cross. What happens to people who carry crosses? They die. Take up your cross and follow me. The Lord wants to take 
the Laban in your heart and nail it to the cross. He wants to take that worst version of you. He wants to take that monster and nail it to the cross and said, we're going somewhere else now. That's not your destiny anymore. That flesh has been crucified. He says we will not only die with Christ, we will be raised to walk in newness of life. And now your destiny is no longer to become like that deceptive, lying old man, but to become the father of the nation of Israel. And you don't have to be thrown into the wilderness by your own sin in order to have a moment like this. Sometimes God, just by his grace, says, hey, let's deal with this. You ever been in a prayer meeting or a worship service and all of a sudden God brings something up out of your heart and holds it up in front of your face and you feel so ashamed and scared of what is all that and you you try to ignore it? The Lord isn't trying to do that to freak you out. He's trying to hold us up and say, let's handle this now where there's no threat, there's no struggle, there's no problem. You don't have to go through all that mess. I had a friend or a, a girl I knew in high school and she was always talking about this boyfriend and that thing and I asked her one time, I said, why do you keep dating all these losers? If you know, you're, she said, ah, we're going to break up, but we might as well have some fun. I'm like, you, you know you're going to do it. You, what's the point? She goes, well, I've got to make my own mistakes. I'm like, so you know it's a mistake and you're doing it on purpose? That's foolishness. That's actual foolishness. You don't have to make your own mistakes. You can let somebody else make them for you. <laughs> Say, hey, he did that, so I won't do that because I saw how it ended. The Lord wants to change you. And that doesn't mean it'll be any easier because sometimes the most difficult thing is to accept and acknowledge what's inside you and acknowledge what your flesh is. It's no good to ignore it. No good is to pretend it doesn't exist and you lock it in a closet somewhere and hope it doesn't come bursting out because it will. The Lord says, let's take this thing and let's nail it to the cross. Let me make something better out of you. And Jacob had his baggage now. He's going to have this baggage. But God can make you the kind of person to handle all your baggage. And he can turn the the terrible situation that should not have been married to two sisters and he's going to make it something glorious and wonderful because that's what God does. There is a war of potential being waged over your life between the flesh and the Holy Spirit. And God wants to reveal that Laban side of you so that you can flee from it and fight it. That's always what lies at the center of the wilderness and the depths of the sea. The children of Israel were brought into the wilderness and they started erecting a golden calf to worship. We'll never leave you, Lord. Oh, we're going with you, Moses. We're, we're totally going after you. No, no, no. You guys are sexually immoral, idolatrous, prideful people. This is why you need my law. Elijah thought he was something. Oh, Lord, I'm the last true prophet. And God takes him into the wilderness and he sees you're just a coward. I'm right there with you and I have not abandoned you. The Lord takes us into the depths of the sea and we see that giant fish that swallows us up. Jonah said, I was down in the gates of Sheol, the grave, the death. That's, what, that's where the flesh takes you. Isn't that true? Where sin takes you? Sin takes you to death and leaves you there. But the Lord comes in and says, how about we haul that fish out of the water and we chop it up and I'll turn you into something better. I'll redeem all of those Awful tendencies. Jacob's willingness to struggle and fight for what he wanted. Jacob's willingness to endure hardship. Those were noble things, but his sin was all messed up and twisted up in it. And God's going to go, I I love your attitude, man, how you just keep fighting and you keep struggling and you don't let Laban get you down, but you got all this lies and deceit stuck up in it. Let me rip that part out of you and we'll keep the rest. And now you are... Israel, he's going to say. I'm getting ahead of myself because I love chapter 35 so much. 
We'll get to it. It's not until Jacob was willing to renounce his uncle and return home that he would really begin to change. And it's the same for you and me. You've got to be able to see who you really are, renounce that, and go follow Jesus. Because as James said, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Oh, I know. I'm very aware of myself. That you don't deceive yourself. You've got to do something about it. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he was like. And he comes back to church every week, testifying and weeping and crying over the same old thing that he's been doing every week for years. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. When you look in the spiritual mirror, you've got to be ready to do what's necessary to change. And until then, you're never going to see God's promises fulfilled in your life. And then Satan's going to come in and try to tell you that it's God's fault that you're going through this. When in reality, God says, I've been trying to get us to move past this for a long time. You can either take your place with all the same sins of your mom and your dad. Jacob was a liar and a deceiver like his mom. He showed favoritism like his dad. Or you can take your place as a son of God and bring that transformation home to your family. And you become not just an, an agent of your family, you're an agent of change in your family. The day that you nail that part of yourself to the cross and you submit to Christ, he's going to draw out of you a redeemed, truer version of yourself that will be a blessing and a joy, not just to yourself, but to everyone around you. I like that analogy, the monster in the mirror. We think we're one way and then God shows us who we really are. Let the Lord do that for you. Take some time and say, God, where do I need transformation? God will answer that question. You don't have to go out into the desert. You can go right now. The Lord can take you there by His Holy Spirit and bring change to you. That's what church is for, to have those slow, incremental changes. It's not always some big, life-altering moment. Sometimes it's just, hey, man, that attitude's got to go. You're making people angry, and you're going to frustrate people, and then they're going to start to abandon you, and you're going to hate that. So get that attitude under control. Get that lust under control, that temper, whatever it is. Those violent thoughts. Oh, you haven't done anything yet, but you're building up a violent person inside of yourself. Like David said in the Psalms, search me. See if there's any wicked way in me. You might know exactly what it is. You might have no idea. But God wants to be constantly redeeming and refining all the parts of you. And He wants to destroy that sinful, destructive part of your life. And He wants to redeem and glorify what's good Satan likes to convince us that to be human and to be you means all of your messed up sinful parts too. God doesn't see it that way. He sees your sin as an intrusion, corrupting who you really are and who you really could be. And that's what Jesus talks about, the abundant life that he offers. Sin will steal and kill and destroy and wreck everything. Jesus comes and brings new life.